This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. such an honor to be here with you, Joe. Yeah, this is great. I'm so excited. Your work is entirely accessible. Um, I want to ask you a bunch of questions about the advice that you got in your most recent piece of work about marriage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you traveled the world and you gathered advice from a wide variety of different sources. Um, what was the most interesting piece of advice and what was the most difficult piece of advice either to hear or to implement? So I did travel around the world. We went to 20 different countries on five continents uh, during the first year of our marriage. And the goal of which was to kick off a good, happy, successful marriage from the start. Um, as a, when you go to the self-help section of a bookstore, you see books about how to mend a bad marriage, what to do after infidelity, what to do after things are going wrong, what to do right before you get divorced. And nothing was wrong with my new marriage. I just wanted to start it off on the right foot. And so we interviewed, my husband Nick and I, he's back there, um, interviewed hundreds of, of women and, and some, some men about what marriage can and should mean in the year 2016, now 2017. And the hardest advice came around the topic of communication. I think that's the hardest advice for any couple, no matter how long you've been married. I think men and women often tend to communicate differently or we're not taught to communicate properly. Um, one of the biggest problems I had when I was getting married is that no one was giving me any advice and we didn't really have great marriage role models. The advice that I got here in the States was don't go to bed angry and always be honest with your partner. Two, two of the things that I think, I think getting a good night's sleep and maybe a couple little white lies are the building blocks of a happy marriage. So learning how to communicate was the hardest thing for us. Um, and also learning gratitude and learning to be thankful for your partner, which was advice that we got traveling around India where gratitude is much more baked into their culture. Um, learning how to express that on a daily basis as opposed to just doing it very superficially the way we tend to here in the States you know, with hashtag blessed on Instagram and things like that. Um, but the easiest thing, I think, for the two of us to implement was to stay our own person, which is my husband's favorite advice, which was when you get married, you don't become one that's kind of bullshit. Um, and to remain independent and to keep having your own experiences, keep your own set of friends so that you can be stronger together as a couple. And we heard that over and over again, but most often in the Northern European countries like Denmark, um, Holland and Sweden. Mm -hmm. So you just said a whole bunch of, of really interesting things that, and laid out some advice that's a little bit uh, um, opposite, you know? So be your own person and 
have your own life. And at the same time, there was a thread, I think it was Daniello from Chile who mentioned something yes. like, what did he say? He said, you should talk everything out. You should say everything. Say everything before it gets weird and strange and uncomfortable, right. yeah. Which, and then you mentioned white lies. So how much is too much? Um, how do we discern? It's a good, it's a good question. Um, the French will tell you exactly how much is too much. Yes, um, they had some really good advice. They did, they did. So we were in Paris and I was in the south of France and interviewing a wide variety of women there, including one woman who was the owner of the most expensive lingerie shop in all of Paris. What I learned early on is that French women think they do everything better than American women. And in some ways they do, don't and they? And in a lot of ways they do. <laughs> Where do we? Where and, are we better than them? And it's and, and it's hard <laughs> to swallow. Um, and in fact, it's much easier to swallow with several glasses of good wine and a plate full of cheese. But the French advice to me was to be your husband's mistress. And on its face, it sounds kind of upsetting, a little bit icky, especially if you're a feminist, independent woman, which I considered myself to be. But once you unpack it a little bit, it's really interesting. And it's about maintaining mystery in your marriage. It's about not complaining constantly to your spouse. I mean, what I found was that American men and women seem to take complaining about our spouses to an Olympic level. We really do. Um, and nagging. We nag. We complain. We say things to the person that we married that we would never say to anyone else in our lives. And so the French women say to maintain a little bit of mystery, to keep, keep some things to yourself and not, not keep the things that are important to the relationship to yourself. But you don't necessarily need to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, oh my God, my face is blotchy and I feel fat and look at this new wrinkle, this is disgusting. Um, the French women's response to that was, your husband is going to think about you what you think about you. And so why are you saying all these terrible things about yourself all the time? Um, they're very insistent that we need to all start closing the bathroom door more often. I don't know where they got the idea that all American women pee with the door open. I let them know that my apartment is incredibly small. The bathroom is also very tiny. But um, I have started shutting the bathroom door, and I think it does add a little bit air of, air of mystery to our marriage. Although now I will say that I text my husband from the bathroom. <laughs> So it's kind of that stay connected and give stay, mystery stay at the same time. Keep the mystery. <laughs> Thanks to modern technology. It's good. So the French women in particular, out of all the advice that you got, really did kind of allude to eroticism and sex a little bit more they than did. some of the others. They did. As a sex therapist, I'm, I of course have a lot of understanding of all the difficulties that people have upstream from the actual sexual act um, in creating intimacy and creating eroticism. Sounds like the French women have it nailed, nailed down a little bit. They do. Say more about how much you think sex matters in making a happy marriage. I think sex and intimacy matters a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And we tend to forget that. We either tend to forget that or we put too much importance and too much pressure on it. But we don't think enough about how to actually fix it, how to actually implement change in a marriage. And one, another one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is when we got engaged, we put it on Facebook and it got more likes than anything else I'd ever done in my entire life, including publishing a book or getting a job promotion. And yet at the same time, we, no one was, was 
talking to us about real things that we could do. You know, every romantic comedy ends with the engagement and the wedding and doesn't talk about the actual marriage. So again, it was the, Fr the French were w willing to dig in, to get deep, to really talk about what to do to keep fostering intimacy. And, you know, they talk a lot about sexy lingerie. They talk a lot about walking around the house naked and throwing away your gross sweatpants. And I work from home now, I'm a writer, so I wake up in the morning and trade my pajamas for my fancy sweatpants, which um, are like my Lululemon ones. I'm like, you guys don't understand how much I've spent on yoga wear. But, um, and then at night, you know, we'll go out and maybe I'll put on a stretchy dress now. Uh, and then my non-fancy sweatpants. Uh, but they, the French said no, you know, walk around naked, walk around confident, be confident in your sexuality, embrace your sexuality. They also advise sleeping apart one night a week to make your partner miss you, to make them remember what it's like when you're not there. Um, and that's advice that I got from a lot of different cultures to come apart, to come back together stronger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking as you're talking about the other, the other notes that you hit in the book are around feminism and the next generation of women. And I really kind of responded to that. Um, we are, I don't know how old you are, but we're of similar, similar age in the same maybe decade. And there's this sense that we were given an opportunity to consider marriage in a new light. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious absolutely. what you think the next generation of women, what our daughters are going to make of this business of marriage and how historically situated all this advice might be or not. Yeah, well, so I interviewed a lot of marriage historians for the book, um, just talking about the evolution of marriage. And marriage has long been really a business partnership uh, between a man and another man, not even a man and a woman, but between a man and his bride's father. Uh, even well into the 20th century, we saw women choosing a husband based on whether or not he could financially support her, whether or not he could take care of her. And a lot of women, my mother included, went from their father's house into their husband's house. And so I think it's important for all of us to note that we are the first generation of women, really, that doesn't need to get married here in America. We can support ourselves financially. We don't need a man to protect us. We can have a baby on our own with a turkey baster and a very expensive doctor. And what does that mean for marriage then? What does, what does the role of wife mean? What does the role of husband mean? And why should anyone get married at all? And early in the book, I, I had interviewed Erica Jong, who wrote Fear of Flying. You know, she's just this badass feminist who's been married four times. And the last one for, was for 20 years. And I asked her, I'm like, Erica, why do you keep doing it? Why, I mean, four husbands, why do you keep getting married? And she said, because it's nice to have one close friend in a hostile world. It's nice to have someone to hold your hand. And I think that's the reason we do keep doing this. But I think that we're going to see an evolution of what marriage means and looks like. And it is up to our generation to define what that means. And how do you have a marriage between two equals? And how do you have a marriage where everyone feels fulfilled in their personal lives, in their professional lives? Uh, what The things that we're seeing in Northern Europe are that people are staying together as partners and never getting married legally. So I think that that is a natural evolution in some ways. Um, I think that we will start seeing that for our daughter's generation. But 
we're the first generation to really disrupt marriage, and I think it's going to start changing a lot in the next 15 to 20 years. So I have this parallel thought that perhaps uh, capitalism or economics or globalism or even technology are the driving force instead of our free choice. And this is sort of a disappointing thought, but perhaps there's this idea that in Sweden they have fabulous marriages or the choice to be equal because of their economic system. Absolutely, I think that's true. What if we keep going in the direction we're going with difficulties with sustainability and overpopulation and disease and difficulty, you know, maybe artificial intelligence takes over all of our jobs, we have nothing and it's Mad Max. What will marriage do then? I think marriage will revert back maybe to what- marriage it, won't matter then. <laughs> well, no, I think it'll revert back to what it was before. And if you mm. think about it, we all thought up until November that we were on the cusp of something very interesting, of a very yes, we did. big shift <laughs> yes, we did. Um, in how we viewed the world and how we viewed gender roles, and now it seems like the clock has been set back 25 years. Um, I say that nor the Northern European countries seem to have happier marriages, and I will preface this by saying their divorce rates are about the same. And so when I say happier marriage, I don't say that based on longevity. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we're another culture that bases successful marriage on longevity. My parents were married for 40 years. They hated each other more and more each year. Um, but I know couples that had a wildly successful and fulfilling and happy marriage that were only married for 10 years. There's less of a stigma on divorce, on splitting up, on growing out of your marriage in those countries. They're also able I think to have more satisfactory divorces and to worry less than we do because of their social safety net. Um, and that social safety net ingrains equality into the culture more. And the Dutch women were some of the most feminist women that I'd met, and yet 75% of the women in Holland work part-time. Um, they work three days a week as opposed to five, and they call that their feminist choice. They say, look, I don't look at my career as the only facet of being a feminist, I look at being happy. And so I want time for myself, I want time for my hobbies, my passions, my marriage, and my children, and this is how I accomplish that. Um, here in the States, it's often not possible to raise a family on just one income or one and a half incomes, and it puts a huge strain on a marriage. And especially when we were in Sweden, we focused that chapter on equality and on what happens after you have a baby. So clearly when I w wrote this book, I was not yet pregnant, but I wanted to get our marriage in a great place before we chose to have kids. And Sweden has 18 months paid parental leave. It's shared between the parents. You get an extra four months if the father takes it. It doesn't matter if you have a full-time job or you're a consultant, you just hand over your tax return and you say, this is how much money I made last year. And the marriages were happier. People told me they felt more fulfilled. They felt like much more able to understand what the other partner who did stay at home was going through. And after they both went back to work, they tended to be more satisfied with their marriage. Because during having kids is one of the most difficult things a marriage can go through. And yet, despite the fact that a certain party in our country claims to be the party of family values, 
they do nothing to support a marriage and keeping a marriage together during that incredibly sensitive time. That's right. Hmm. So you've just, you've kind of really made it clear that capitalism and the social supports are related. You also in the book talk a lot about the friendships and kind of the general feeling, I'm gonna get it wrong, but it, the, what's that, the word, huga? Huga. Huga, huga. okay, so I want yeah. you to unpack for them what huga is, and I want you to situate that with this, the, the way you so beautifully talked about the importance of friendship, because I think those are other supports mm -hmm. in addition to just the, the political supports and financial yeah. supports. Yeah, yeah. Um, huga, which is becoming very popular in the United States, is a Danish word for creating a cozy and comfortable life. There's no equivalent for it here. And it can mean everything from creating a cozy and comfortable home to creating happiness within your relationships and happiness within your marriage. And one of the things that I was told was, was very huga. And they use this as a noun, an adjective, and a verb. It's a very special word <laughs> and very hard to pronounce without getting some phlegm in your throat. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go easy on the front row here. But one of the things that they say is very huga in Denmark is the fact that people leave work at four o'clock. And not just moms, but everyone leaves the office at four o'clock. And they do this so that they have time to get home for dinner, to prepare a nice dinner, um, a healthy dinner but then also to have some time for themselves before they go home, to read a chapter of a book, to go for a jog, to do yoga, if that's what's important to them. And they do it so that by the time they get home, they're not rushed through dinner. They can enjoy conversation with their family. And you know, if you look at the American dinner table, a lot of days you have four people sitting there on their phones. And so I was in Denmark and I'm in restaurants and I looked around and I realized no one was on their phones. They were just enjoying their food. And I asked them, I was like, don't you guys want to Instagram your food? And they said, no, don't you want to talk to the person that you said you want to spend the rest of your life with over dinner? Uh, and it was eye-opening and, and very, very interesting. Uh, they respect their relationships a lot more, I think, than we do and give those relationships precious space that we're not giving them in the United States. Hmm. So we're eroding huga every day as we Instagram and Facebook. Constantly, constantly we are finding ways to erode huga. And we don't light enough pretty scented candles in our houses. <laughs> so it's interesting when people come to sex therapy and they say, we don't have any kind of a connection, we never do it. And usually we ask, okay, so what are you doing instead of doing it? And they usually say, well, we're texting and we're in Instagramming and we're working yeah. late and we're stressed out. And to try to get people to put away their phones. Phones in the bedroom. Phones and computers in yeah. the bedroom. Phones, computers, and TV all at the same all time. All at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's no wonder. I, I don't know how any Americans are procreating anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's really interesting, though, is they won't budge. Yeah. I wonder if we have to send them all to Denmark. We should send them all to Denmark. All of them. All of them. <laughs> yes. Um, plus, there's, there's really delicious food there. I They'd imagine. enjoy it. So tell us about the, the importance of friendships, because I think we are experiencing a level of um, disconnect in some ways. We're connected to all of our friends all the time. Mm -hmm. But we but have experienced, at least psychologically, that people connected. are very disconnected. Yeah. yeah. Say a little bit about how that got connected to marriage for you. Yeah. So when we, uh, just a little bit of backstory. 
Uh, I wrote the book in real time and I reported it in real time from two weeks before when we got married to our first anniversary. And we were talking about this right before we came up here and I did that so that I could be raw and honest in the book um, as opposed to looking back and having my memory kind of clouded by, oh my God, that was just the best first year of marriage ever. Uh, but what that allowed me to do is when I go back and reread it now is really remember the honesty. And one of the hardest parts of our new marriage was the fact that I moved here from New York two weeks before we got married and didn't know anyone. And all of a sudden, my husband was my only friend in a new city. And that was terrifying and hard. And we traveled over to Kenya and Tanzania and spent time with the Samburu and Maasai tribes who said they felt very sorry for Americans because we don't have a community support system around us to support a marriage and to support a family. And because I'd just gone through this huge transition and not having friends, I realized how hard it is to go through your first year of marriage and have to lean on a person so heavily without those friends and without that support system. And research, research shows that Couples who have a larger network of friends are actually happier. They tend to live longer. I mean, you just can't discount it. And yet we're seeing more and more couples move far away from their friends, far away from their families, because we're moving There's to four different cities where we can get jobs that will support us. It, again, it all goes back to capitalism um, because we need to make a living. And so we move into these little tribes of two into a little bubble, and it's not healthy for a marriage. Hmm. Well, we can come back to capitalism, I suppose. But I wanna, I wanna go to one other direction. What do you think apply, I'm, I'm busy running a parallel thought, what do you think applies out of all of this advice to same-sex couples? And what do you think doesn't apply? I think everything applies to same-sex couples. I had a question up in Seattle. Uh, were we in Seattle last night? No, two nights ago. And um, about whether or not there were same-sex couples in the book, and I said there are, but it's not, here's my chapter on same-sex couples. Um, we have a lot of advice from different members of the LGBTQ community, but it's integrated throughout the book, as opposed to saying, hey, here's our very special gay advice. But my very, I do have very special gay advice, actually. <laughs> what is it? Um, well, my friend, some of my closest friends who have been married the longest out of my friend's sphere, um, they got married when we were in our early 20s, which was early for us. I didn't get married till I was 35. And they're both named Megan. They met playing rugby. They moved in together after knowing each other a week. It's a very classic story. <laughs> uh, and so their advice to me from the very beginning of our marriage was to be conscious about the next step. And so, you know, you get married and then everyone's, or you get engaged and you're like, all right, great, plan the wedding. Or you get married and they're like, great, when are you having the baby? And then you have the baby and they're like, fantastic, when's the next baby coming? And for them, because it takes a lot of money and planning and time to make a baby, they had to be very conscious and they had to talk about it over and over and over again and ultimately decided neither of them wanted children. But when you're in a heterosexual couple and it's much easier, it's much easier to fall in that trap of always constantly chasing that next step. And so their advice was to be very conscious. Mm -hmm. Sounds reasonable. It was reasonable. Sounds it was applicable. good advice. They also mm -hmm. gave me the most practical underwear at my bachelorette lingerie party. <laughs> 
which is Patagonia moisture wicking sports bra and underwear, of which I still wear on a weekly basis. Everything else has gone to goodwill, despite what the French women may have wanted me to do. It's also hot to be able to climb an ice mountain or something. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I wore it, we, we end the book climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and so that Patagonia underwear got a lot of use. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So I want to, I wanna, my specialty is infidelity, which is not as, uh, it's a little more fraught of a topic. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice? The statistics are really um, poor for marriages that want to remain monogamous. Most, most couples are promising monogamy. Between an estimated 20 to 50% are not, at some point in the lifetime of the marriage, remaining monogamous. What, what advice do you have that applies to folks around issues of infidelity? Well, one of the interesting things that I learned is that Americans are the, one of the most rigid cultures when we talk about we, we don't tolerate infidelity, we despise infidelity, and yet people are doing it and lying about it and then castigating people for it. Whereas in France, where and I really did think that the secret to a happy marriage in France was that everyone had a mistress. And when I said that, I was glared at as if I had just said everyone in France also murders puppies. And they told me no, but they do tolerate it in a way that we don't. And so they say, yes, I don't care if my president has an affair. And most of their presidents do have affairs, so that's a good thing for them. But they, they accept it as a part of life. They accept it as something that can happen and you can move on from it. And they have a conversation around it as opposed to attaching this stigma of, I mean, I, I hate to keep bashing on the Republican Party, but now that I'm back in San Francisco, I feel safe. It was tough there in the middle of the country for a while. But um, we just saw the headlines that Mike Pence won't go to dinner with a woman who's not his wife. Um, he said that in an interview with the Washington Post, or it was a profile of his wife. And you know, that's insane. And so if we're creating these rigid structures around how often you can interact with another, another man or another woman, you know, we're creating this forbidden fruit. Whereas the French say, you should flirt with other people. You should flirt with other people in front of your spouse. Like, why are you trying to put your sexuality in this box just because you happen to have this piece of paper that says that you're pledged to another person? And we have just very narrow definitions of what equals fidelity and then what equals cheating. It's interesting because Mike Pence's stance also leads to barring women from... Uh, dinner. Dinner, but also <laughs> important kind of... <laughs> Important dinners that would, that might promote their careers. Oh, exactly. Right? Well, yes, so, I mean, exactly. obviously, this is a this is a move to prevent women from gaining power as well. Hmm. Interesting. And then there were some interesting points. I, I don't recall which countries. It, there was there were a lot of countries in the book. Um, maybe it was the Malawi tribe. I'm not sure. But there were there were places where there were co-wives mm -hmm. to share the work. And sometimes I fan. You know, there's those there's those famous poems, I can't recall the author, where, you know, I wish I had a wife. You know, I sometimes wish I had a wife. Yeah. It would be lovely. Yeah. It would be no, lovely. Exactly. And I love that. And actually, the, um, the essay, I Wish I Had a Wife, which was written in Thank the you. <laughs> original um, issue of Ms. Magazine, mm -hmm. was originally in the book in full. Oh, fantastic. Um, and then we, we moved it for space. And I actually keep forgetting that it's not in there anymore, because it's so good. It's by Judy Cyphers. And in Africa, we, we spent time with the polygamous tribes. And 
you know, of course, because we're Americans, everyone thinks that everything is about sex, uh, even though we don't want to talk, talk Isn't about it. it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm kidding. here's the thing, and it wasn't. And so you go in talking about polygamy, and it wasn't about sex. It was about division of labor. And it's, it takes a certain flexibility of our Western thinking to accept it, but it's typically the first wife who asks for a second wife because she has too much damn work to do and her husband's not doing any of it. Um, and a lot of my friends here, you know, I have, I have these friends who are, are very fierce, you know, tiger mom investment bankers in New York, and they're like, well, why don't they tell the men to do more? And I'm like, because they won't. So the answer is more women because the women will do the work. I mean, the women, they're walking miles and miles to collect the water. They're taking care of all of the livestock. They build the houses out of mud and dung with their bare hands and also take care of all of the children. And so once they reach a certain point, once they have a certain number of livestock and they have a certain number of children, the first wife will ask for a second wife. And it is about a division of labor. And there's also a lot of problems with polygamy. We get into them in the book. We talk about it, but you know what we, do really delve into is that division of labor, is that sometimes it's nice to have someone to share the burden and not just the housework and not just the cooking, but the emotional burden of your spouse. And so here in the States too, we have this expectation that our spouse is everything, that our spouse is our best friend and our soulmate, which is a uniquely American word. <coughs> that they're our therapist and our travel buddy and our workout partner, and over there your spouse is just your spouse. And I think it would do us a lot of favors if we allowed that emotional burden to be taken off of us with our spouse's friends, with our friends, with our spouse's family. Mm -hmm. As you're talking, I'm thinking about an essay that I recently read about equity theory as applied to marriage and as applied in particular to polyamory mm -hmm. with the idea that when there are imbalances, you can add additional people either as sexual partners or as additional co-workers co or additional friends um, to kind of make the balance work out. It's fascinating, it's fascinating. I wanted to highlight one very specific part of the book that is both hilarious and and really interesting that many of you have not potentially heard about, um, the wife-carrying scene. Wife-carrying, yes. It's, it's a wonderful metaphor, and it's hilarious. And I wonder if you would do us the pleasure of reading a segment? I would love to. This is my husband's favorite chapter, actually. So to, to set it up, one of the things that we talk about in the book is teamwork. And when you're getting married later and you've already, you, you're a fully formed human being by the time you marry another person, Figuring out how to work as a team is hard. Our limbic systems don't do it naturally. Um, so we undertook this chapter during a very San Francisco part of our marriage. And this story actually, you, people aren't interested in this when I talk about it in other cities, but I'd say we, were, we needed to find a new place to live and it's very, very expensive to live in this city. And we couldn't afford rent here anymore. And in fact, getting a mortgage was going to be cheaper so we started going through the process of looking for a home. And it was so stressful, we were talking to marriage therapists, both for the book and for our marriage. Uh, and they told us to do something else, something that was equally challenging, that didn't involve trying to fax 17 documents to a bank every day to find out if we were worthy to continue to live in this city. Uh, and so we entered a wife-carrying race. Wife-carrying is an actual sport in Finland. Um, it's very dark there, 
So they come up, they drink a lot. So they come up with some wacky things. But the North American Wife Carrying Championships were taking place in Sunday River, Maine, just about an hour and a half away from a wedding that Nick and I were attending. And the prize of this competition, which is like a tough mutter race, except you carry your wife on your back, was the wife's weight in beer. <laughs> and so we decided we would be the most popular guests at the wedding. And they actually put the wife on a seesaw and put beer on the other side of it until the two even out. And you might think that you would piggyback or maybe like firemen's carry your wife and you would be wrong. You do something called the Estonian carry, which is where the woman hangs down over the man's back with her head between his legs and her legs like this because that way the man's hands are free to brace himself when he inevitably falls on his face. Um, and so Nick and I were very cocky about this. We're like, you know, we run in Golden Gate Park a lot. <laughs> We've got this. And the fact of the matter is, we definitely did not have this. Could your wife step on the scale? The race coordinator asked Nick when we went to pick up our wife carrying race packets at the Rustic Ski Lodge in Sunday River. It's not necessary, I said, in what I believed to be an adorable sing-song voice. I weigh 130 pounds. You'll have to get on the scale, the no-nonsense Maynard replied. 140 pounds. More beer for you, Nick high-fived me. It wasn't until we arrived at the race that we realized just how serious the people who participate in wife-carrying competitions really are about wife-carrying competitions. The other couples arrived hours earlier, closer to dawn, and were already practicing in the chill morning air as we sipped our lattes. That's a steep ass hill, Nick said, gazing up at the ski slope. The other men leapt over log hurdles like gazelles or Namibians, their petite wives balanced delicately on their shoulders. All of these people look very athletic, Nick said, staring them down. We are not very athletic people. Let's do a practice run, I said. It's cool, we've got this, we're a team. We attempted a hurdle. Nick lost his balance and I fell on my head. Son of a bitch. Rubbing my head and glaring at my husband from the ground, I began to think that marriage is like a long and difficult race or an obstacle course where you carry your wife up a mountain and through a pond of muck and sometimes, albeit by accident, drop her on her face. Did you see that guy's biceps, Nick said, about a wife-carrying challenger with upper arms the size of chubby babies. It was clear we were the least prepared couple to arrive in Sunday River. Contenders gathered at the base of the ski slope, sizing one another up with elevator eyes and inappropriate questions. What's your wife weigh? What'd you eat for dinner last night? Are you flexible? There were all sorts of couples competing. There was the alpha couple. They were the ones doing synchronized jumping jacks while emitting low and intimidating grunts. There was the drunk couple who kept crushing beer cans on the ground and chest bumping one another. <laughs> You'd think they were less prepared than we were. You would be wrong. As we approached the start line, we realized we were racing against the alpha couple, last year's wife-carrying champions. 
As Alpha Husband limbered up, he lunged from side to side, his giant thigh muscles pulsing beneath his spandex. This won't be humiliating at all, Nick said. A lopsided contest makes for a better story, I replied. We've got this. I lied to my husband for the first time. Nick heaved me up onto his shoulders and we were off. The alpha couple sped up the hill and became tiny specks in the distance within seconds. We moved forward slowly, steadily. Unable to see anything, I had to trust Nick to tell me when we were about to climb over a log or risk smacking my face into the obstacle. Log coming, he'd shout. We've got a hole in the ground. All I could see were his feet, which kept moving slower and slower. The crowd cheered and shouted encouragement. Smack his backside, they hollered. Smack his ass. I tried to be his biggest cheerleader. You're the best. Don't drop me. I love you. Don't drop me. You are the greatest husband in the history of husbands and very, very handsome. Don't drop me. And he didn't drop me. We crossed the finish line in two minutes and 20 seconds, the longest race time of any team that hadn't dropped a wife. Yes. <laughs> Several wives were dropped. Nick was out of breath, muddy, and freezing. This is the first major hurdle we've gotten through as a couple, and I kind of can't believe we did it. We agreed to do this crazy-ass thing together, and then, then we did it. Nick babbled in possible shock. You know, this taught me a lot about having a sense of humor, about setting expectations for things for our marriage. I'm just happy I didn't drop you. Also, I think I threw out my back. <laughs> He's okay now. <laughs> no husbands were hurt in the making of this book. It's quite a visual, actually. I keep wanting to go and find, Google and find you one should, of these. You should, you should. Everyone should Google YouTube videos of wife carrying championship races. You will lose three hours of your life. <laughs> it is spectacular. It is a lot of women getting dropped in the mud, is what it is. But the wife carrying race is incredibly inclusive. Your wife can be your wife. Your husband can be your wife. It's, you know. So you can do husband you carrying. You can do, yeah, you can do husband If you have a particularly small husband. Um, I couldn't fit Nick on my shoulders. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So I, I wanted to kind of, you, you did the first year of marriage. The first year of marriage can be the hardest, but can also be the easiest. Absolutely. Having 13 years in myself and two kids, um, and all of the literature supports that kind of the first five years post first baby are the worst, and any of the years with any children under five are terrible. Um, not to scare you, by the way. No, no, um, no that's fair. And there That's are why tensions. We're moving to Northern Europe. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense for the Huga. Um, I'm curious what you what you foresee will be the relevance of, of the advice, or what you can't, what you imagine you can't see mm -hmm. from where you sit. A lot, a lot. It was interesting it's being on that. It was interesting being in New York and doing interviews with so many different media outlets, different magazines, and different television shows because they all immediately wanted to call me a marriage expert because that's really good for SEO and for headlines. And I'm the first person to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. I wrote this book because I have no idea what I'm doing because no one talked about what a real first year of marriage was actually like. The marriage experts that I talked to about it did call the first year of marriage the wet cement year 
because it's the year where we're setting patterns and the year where we're setting habits for what our marriage will look like going forwards. And so it could be the easiest, it could be the hardest, but at least we're putting ourselves in a good place as we face things going forwards. Um, again, and I said it before, but we really, we wanted to make sure that our marriage was strong and good before we had kids because we know it's going to be difficult going forwards. And everyone told me that. Americans also like to complain more about what happens after having children than other cultures. Um, we, I think we just, we like to give the terrifying highlights of things rather than talk about the things that are good. But and they, we also tend to compare child rearing to armed combat much more often than other cultures. We do. But we've, at some of our readings, we've had people that have read the book that have been married for 10, 15, 20, even 50 years. There was one in Milwaukee a few nights ago, and they say it's a nice reminder. It's a nice reminder for what it looks like can look like in the beginning or just a nice reminder for things you, they never talked about in the beginning of a marriage. And not all of the advice is for everyone. I like to say that it's kind of a buffet. You should pick and choose. There's no, mar no marriage is alike. No relationship is alike. Um, I think it was Tolstoy who said, all happy marriages are the same and all unhappy marriages are interesting in their own interesting ways. And I just mangled that, but it was the general sentiment. And I think the opposite is true that all unhappy marriages have a lot more in common and all happy marriages take more work and it's a little more interesting to try to have a happy and fulfilling marriage than it, I think it's easier to have an unhappy marriage. It's interesting we're talking about happiness and I sometimes think about it's uniquely American that we get in this like positive thinking, I'm entitled you have to happiness. To, I'm entitled to happiness and that yeah. my marriage should give me happiness. Yeah. Um, or that life should give me that happiness, That frankly. I deserve happiness. Mm -hmm. And there's very few other cultures believe that, that they deserve happiness or that their marriage should be creating anything other than being a marriage, being a partnership to raise children. We expect a lot out of our marriage, and I think that's why we tend to be so dissatisfied with them. Yeah. But I also think just being conscious of that changes things, shifts things a little bit. Just putting the marriage in perspective and talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, from an existential perspective, we tend to also think about you know, it's one of the choices that you make, and you make it, and you can't undo it. You can divorce, and you can make another choice again, but those, it, it marks the steady march of time, and time running out, and yeah. it's inherently wistful in that way. Yeah, well, and we also make such a big deal out of the wedding here. Um, you know, we spend as much as a house on the wedding. We make it the most important day of a woman's life, and when you do that, I think you're downplaying what comes next. Indeed. Indeed. Well, wonderful. Well, what comes next for the two of you? Well, this. <laughs> the three of you. <laughs> the three of us. Um, and professionally, what comes next for and you? And professionally. So I have another book. And I write fiction and nonfiction. I like to switch in between the two. And so I have a novel coming out in July. And I'm writing a book, which is a satire on the American political campaign system, Fantastic. which features a woman running for Senate in Pennsylvania, which, if you can believe it, has never elected a woman to wow. the Senate. Wow. Um, and so I've been a journalist covering politics for a lot of it for 15 years, and it's 
you know, kind of a stinging diatribe against how the media treats women and how politics is generally covered these days, but also hilarious and fun. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so oh, hoping to finish that before uh, our, our new arrival. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, these are, I mean, your, your uh, career has so many high points in many ways. I'm really interested in, you wrote something about, uh, what was it titled? The nuns. Nuns, if nuns ruled the world. Yeah, what would nuns say about marriage? Nuns are very pro-marriage. So the nun, there's 10 nuns. What advice would they give though? Profiled. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I think that you're in it for the long run, that marriage is a marathon and not a sprint, and to be incredibly mindful of the fact that this is a journey you're taking together. Nuns typically take the long view. Um, it, and it was, they I, have time. They, they have, have time. They have plenty, well, because they have no kids. But um, <laughs> I interviewed 10 badass feminist nuns in the original title of the book was Bad Habit, The Secret Lives of Nuns, and the nuns didn't like that, and I'm so terrified of them, so I changed the title. Um, but they they were wildly supportive of, of my marriage, and so they were some of, I'm still very close with them, and they were some of the first people that I texted when I met Nick on a boat in the Galapagos Islands and then got engaged three months later. Uh, and they, they like him, they think he's very handsome. That was their first remark. They told me that they thought he was handsome. That's very nice of them. Uh, you know. And the nuns, nuns are not... text? They text. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they text. They text. They tweet. They're, they're all over social media. <laughs> of course they do. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I need to get with the program here then, apparently. Well, you should also hang out with some nuns because they, Indeed. Can, they, they definitely make your life a lot happier. Indeed. Well, wonderful. Well, um, what else would you like to say about marriage at this point? What Gosh. advice do you give to people? I mean, we covered so much of it. I think some of the best advice that we learned is to let go, unpack all of the expectations that you came into marriage with. I think expectations are, they're really, they don't just kill a marriage, but they also kill the rom romance. And so just kind of live and not expect a certain thing out of your marriage every day. And then also, and the book is as much about travel as it is about marriage. And so being able, I, I was a travel editor when I wrote this book. I was not a celebrity or a rich person. Um, so I was able to go to all of these countries because it was graciously financed by Yahoo Travel, which no longer exists. But thank you, Marissa <laughs> Meyer, for giving me a job that allowed me to write this book. Um, but I think traveling together is one of the best things you can possibly do for a marriage and then also traveling apart. So I end the book without Nick, much to my publisher's chagrin, because they're like, oh my gosh, people are going to get very upset about this. Um, and I said they'll deal with it, and it's fine, and I wanted to do that to show the importance of traveling apart and the importance of continuing to spend time on your own. So I end the book with a road trip through Scotland with my friend Glynis, who married the two of us, and it was great because I also realized how dependent I'd gotten on my new husband during our first year, and I was still able to wend our way through the Scottish Highlands to a remote cabin and light a fire with just one match in an Us Weekly magazine. <laughs> that was a great moment. It was a great moment for me. I'm picturing the couples that enter my office um, in, in throes of almost divorce, arguing and so, so far away from all of the kinds of qualities that you describe in the book. And I'm wondering, Something like this, they would probably read and say, "Oh, that's you know, that's folly," and and throw it away in the throes of that. Or they won't pick moment. it up. That's, that's the right. Thing. And so, that's right. You know, the titles, the original title for the book, 
um, and this just gives you a little insight into the world of publishing, was how to be a wife um, in a very tongue-in-cheek kind of way, you know, playing on the idea of what does a gender role mean these days. And when you say how to be married to a lot of couples, they're like, I don't need that. I'm fine. I'm happy. Why would I talk about that? And that's part of the problem, that we don't talk about it that we're not talking about what marriage looks like, we're not talking about what makes a good marriage or a bad marriage. There's nothing in this book that says you have to pick it up if you have a bad marriage. Um, but people are terrified of people thinking they would. I've, I've even had friends say, I don't wanna put it on my coffee table because I don't want people to think I need a marriage advice book. And I'm like, everyone needs a marriage advice book. And some of the, one of the best things we did was go to therapy before we got married. And not because we had problems, but because therapy is fantastic. You know, what's interesting is the data support that too, by the way, and nobody goes until it's too late. Nobody and the ones that go ahead of time are really happy yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that is, that is just wonderful. I, um, I think that it, what's fascinating is even though all of these folks that you spoke to are not trained therapists, almost everything they said actually aligns with the research. There's yeah. nothing that's contradictory and none of them had to get an MFT. No, or a side they're just living, or a PhD. living their life. They're, and they're just willing, living their life. Yeah. They're, and willing to talk about it Absolutely. in ways that we are not. Absolutely. Yeah. So it does seem like there is this notion of um, suggesting to people strongly that they engage in some sort of premarital conversations that are ongoing and threaded throughout the marriage about what is it we're doing, some sort of philosophical discourse about what are we doing and what does it mean. Well, it's um, interesting to me that the, one of the top stories that the New York Times had last year was the... 11 questions to ask or to fall in love, like 11 questions to ask someone to fall in love. And then one of the most Googled things is what to ask each other before a marriage. And it's because people don't know what to do. We're floundering. We're asking the internet for how to have a happy marriage. And that's the worst place to ask for advice. Indeed. So when you have a dark moment with Nick, if it should come to pass, I don't know, I'm just guessing that you're regular people, that there will come a year where things are upsetting. Yeah. Do you imagine that you will pick up your own advice? You know, I have to say that this book tour, and we went on it together. Nick, Nick has his own company, and so he was able to work from the road. And so he was able to be with me for three weeks. And so we read the book together a lot. We reread the book together, and we remembered some of the advice that we had forgotten, and that was incredibly valuable. <clears throat> Getting to write and report the book was like marriage boot camp. Mm -hmm. But it's still useful to pick it up and, and read through it. Even so it's going to be on your coffee table? Yes. Yeah. Well, we have 37 copies in the house right now. Mm. so It's on every table. It's on every, it's on every available surface. That's yeah. great. Well, I want to thank you, um, thank you for sharing your time and for sharing your wisdom and your stories and your joy. And it is a real honor to be with you here this evening. This has been such a great interview. Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> well, good. Let's give a round of applause to Joe Pierre. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.